This Quiercast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes explore new (laughs) and challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't find me by what I do in bed. You think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my god. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. Rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. (laughs) Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. It's the button. It's, it's the button. It's time for the podcast. I need to come up with a theme song, John. This okay, is not church because if it was, you would have left by now. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, we have uh, the tagline of the show now is uh, this is not church, uh, but we digress. Oh, is that what it is? What do you think? Sure, I don't know. Works for me. We what was the other one? Every time. No, the, my my current favorite one is this is not church because if it was, you'd have left by now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and it can't be the church. We haven't even passed an offering place. So there's no way this can be church. That's true. There's no way. Although I'm open to the idea of a virtual passing of the plate. So if you would like for the Lord to bless you, folks, um, sow seed into our ministry, and uh, God will bless you sevenfold. I guarantee. Yes. Money back guarantee, John? Yes. Are we the money back money guarantee ba- yet? Ma- money back guarantee. Money yes, back God. guarantee. Yes. So just sow no, seeds into the ministry. But there is a caveat. You of have course. to prove, you have to prove that you had enough faith. Because if you didn't have enough faith, then it's on you, not on oh, us. So, it's, so okay. if they just prove with their receipts that they sowed into the ministry, oh, but it has to, okay. I got you. All right. So, all right. So we're not cynical <laughs> or nothing. Um, no. Not, <laughs> So we are, uh, listen, we're back with another episode. My name is Nat Turney. I'm with my older brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. And we are, we're about ready to jump into a, a brand new, fresh conversation with a new friend of ours. Um, this is uh, Dana Robert Hicks. Let me get something up on his bio for you real quick. And we'll, uh, we'll jump into what I hope to be a really good and interesting conversation. If it has anything to do with him, I'm sure it will. Um, if it's left up to John and me, you're, you, it's a crapshoot, man. Yeah, yeah really <laughs> is. Really, really is. <laughs> there we go. Um, sorry, Dr. Dana Robert Hicks. Don't want to forget the honorific because oh, Ed Gummit, yeah. that's a lot of hard work and you earned it. So Dr. Dana Robert Hicks <laughs> is an Amazon bestselling author and has contributed to more uh, than five, to, to more than five books and many articles that revolve around the themes of culture, change, church planting, and mission. Before his retirement from professional ministry, he was a church planter, pastor, professor, and leadership developer for over 30 years. His book is entitled The Knot, and it has a subtitle that I didn't write down. Maybe you can tell us what the subtitle of that is. Yeah, yeah. How to secure healthy modern relationships while not being tied to marriage's past. Nice, nice. Cool. So if you don't mind, um, John and I like to start conversations off just by kind of getting a little bit of people's background, spiritually, yeah, theologically, whatever, would just kind of give us a rundown of what makes you tick that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a real conservative evangelical um, environment. My father was a minister in a small holiness denomination, and I followed in his footsteps and was part of that denomination for 25 years as well, uh, ministering in 
several states, you know, did the youth pastor gig, did the senior pastor gig, did the church planning thing, kind of all around the West Coast. And then, you know, it was uh, grew increasingly difficult to hide my cognitive dissonance from everyone. Uh, Amen. And uh, so I thought maybe I'd try a, a, a swipe at the Methodist. And so I went to the Methodist camp for a while and um, found out I was trading uh, one set of problems for another. And the grass wasn't as green as I thought it would be. And so decided to retire from ministry. And so I've been, you know, um, doing some work in real estate and insurance and things like that uh, to kind of put food on the table. But it's, what I discovered, kind of stumbled into, was uh, realizing that when the church doesn't pay your salary, you can kind of say what you really think. And, uh, you know, so uh, that's been fun. And so this book is kind of a product of that, of everything really I wanted to say about marriage, but uh, kind of felt like if I did, uh, they might uh, tar and feather me. So... So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's been a, a lot of our experience has been like, listen, if I said everything that was on my mind, I would be fired, first of all, in no short order. And, yeah, uh, and yeah. then probably would damage a lot of relationships along the way. So yeah. um, it, the, the funny thing is, though, like you said, though, I, so I, I resonate with what you said about cognitive dissonance, because at some point, that becomes intolerable, right? Like there's, yeah. it seems yeah. like there's, everyone has their own threshold for how much of that they can put up with. Um, but yeah. everyone, I think most people have a breaking point. And mine came when it came to issues of LGBTQ community and how we, you know, how we treated them, even to, even to how we were treating people with addiction problems and, yeah. you know, sort of giving them a bunch of glib cliches versus offering actual help. I'm like, I just, I don't know, I just couldn't find myself staying there anymore. And the more outspoken I was, the more problems I created. So I left, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was a big issue for me as well, you know, among others. But yeah, the LGBT stuff. And yeah, at some point, you know, I, I, I tell people, you know, it's it's sort of like, um, and actually Trump, the whole Trump thing was kind of a big thing yeah. thing as well. When, yeah, when that too. all went down, I uh, I remember telling somebody, you know, if I if it was the 1950s and I wanted to join a country club and they wouldn't, you know, let African-Americans join, you know, I wouldn't join the country club out of conscience, you know, just, you know, and, and I thought at what point, at what point do you, at what point do you say, you know, to the organization, you're doing more harm than good. And I'm not sure it's in good conscience. I can even stay here, you know, uh, just yeah. being associated with you, even though I'm trying to be a voice for change in this, you know? So yeah, that was kind of, kind of where I, where I ended, finally landed on it. So yeah, I, I did that same sort of dance where I'm like, I, I did, I tried. I really did. I, I think I gave it an honest try to push for change from within, be the voice of dissent from within, because I was still very much um, felt connected to the institution um, sure. and felt it was fixable. And it might still be. Maybe someone else needs to have be. But I just couldn't. I, I'm with you. Like the, the the Trump stuff surprised me, and it probably shouldn't have. In retrospect, it it shows more of my naivete than anything else. But I hadn't seen in my own church experience up to that point. I hadn't seen it on full display until that. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, okay, you guys have been here all along, <laughs> but holy shit, now you're showing all of your true colors. And it got yeah. ugly in a real quick hurry. So, you know, there was, yeah, that that was a big eye opener. Um, and Trump, I think, gave people a lot of, I think he more than anything gave people permission to say out loud what they've been saying inside for a very long time. Right. I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think those 
those people have always been there. But yeah, someone like Trump has given those them permission to speak out loud their homophobia, their racist rants, their whatever, their honestly anti-American nationalism. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, their white nationalism, their their ultra right, religious right rhetoric. It, it gave them permission to come out of the dark. Yep. And, and, and stand in their version, and it's in quotes, their yeah, version and still of stay, And still stay solidly inside of their own understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which was always very strange to me. But, but we digress. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you told me you were going to, so I'm not disappointed at all. Yeah, uh, we do. Hey, so while, while you were inside of the Methodist Church, and I'm not sure how long it's been since you left that organization, yeah. but were you, were you privy to some of the... Because I know there's a lot of internal turmoil mm-hmm. in that church right now over these issues, right? Right. Uh, my friends right. who are Methodist are like, just, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when, um, mm-hmm. that church splits, they're going yeah. to, they're going to split. And yeah, it's going to, it's going to happen. It's yeah. going to happen. So were you inside of that when some of that was roiling or had you gotten out before then? You know, I was so, I was so new to the, I was so new to the denomination that I wasn't an insider by any means, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I was privy to a lot of conversations, obviously, and hand wringing and, and, uh, people worried about their retirement plans and things like that, you know, and, uh, honestly that, you know, it, it, the, the issue is very different conference to conference in the United Methodist church. And the conference I was part of was, was very progressive. So there were no issues in terms of, I could, I could have officiated gay weddings. I, you know, I could have done whatever, but, um, but, you know, it was by no means homogenous. I mean, they, there were people with a, a, a variety of opinions within that conference and a lot of tension. And, and, uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty ugly. Yeah. It, it, it's heartbreaking because I see, again, I have a sort of tangential connection to the Methodist church. Um, I was very heavily involved with the walk to Emmaus years and years mm-hmm. ago and, and have yeah, worked yeah. on many of the, but ours, our, 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 community of, of Walk to Emmaus folks I've found over the years to be a little unique in that it was very ecumenical. And so it was always a big mixture of everyone from Catholic to fundamentalist Christians to, you know, um, obviously Methodist. And, and so yeah, yeah. I have, so I have a little, I have a soft spot in my heart. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like theologically too, like, you know, if you, if you put a gun to my head and make me choose Wesley or Calvin, I'm going Wesley every day, right? <laughs> like Calvin <laughs> yeah. can I got issues with Wesley, but nowhere near the issues I have with the other guy. But I still, I still feel about it. Maybe you can speak to this before we get jumping into the book. I still yeah. feel about the Methodist church the way I feel about any other institutional church and that the institution has taken over. And, and so much of, of, of time and energy and resources are taken up with the sustaining of this massive structure. Oh my you know? gosh. And it just gets, and you don't even yeah. see it. You know, people are not inside of that institution won't notice it. But when you go to talk about the church splitting like this is going to split, this is not your local non-denominational church down the no. street having a church split. This is going to be a massive... Billions and billions of dollars in assets. Yeah, it's super that, complicated, uh, right? It's going to take lo- teams of lawyers to untangle these people from, like you said, retirement plans and who owns church property and man, any number of a hundred other things. And then obviously the ties to different um, seminaries and who's going to be part of what conference and exactly whew, it's going to be. So to me, that sort of, it's going to be a, a bummer for those inside of it. I feel bad for them. But if that doesn't underscore the problem with massive, massive church structures, <laughs> maybe if nothing else will go, <laughs> hey, maybe this wasn't such a great plan. You know, what do you, I don't know. Yeah, and and I think you know, like I think you're you're onto something that in terms of 
organizational structures by by their nature are self-preserving and yeah, they have exactly. to be. And and one of the things I think that surprised me, you know, I came from a real conservative uh, borderline fundamentalist denomination into the Methodist church. And I remember saying to somebody at one point, you know, liberal fundamentalism isn't a whole lot funner than conservative fundamentalism. I mean, amen, brother. <laughs> fundamentalism is crap either way, right? It really is. And, and they just, they just had different things that they were fundamentalist about. And, um, you know, it, it took me a while to kind of dig through it to find them, but they were definitely there. Yeah. And they're just as dogmatic, right? They, they can be. Yeah. And they, and they tend to defend those things as virulently as anybody else does. Mm-hmm. Can be just as, um, vitriolic in their defense. I've, I found that to be true. I don't, I don't do the whataboutism, you know, where like, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. like there's good people on both sides, but I think they're similar to a degree. I would still lean more progressive than conservative just because, but I, but I have seen friends of mine who, who dare to buck, you know, even that trend and have suffered the consequences of that. Well, I think you said it without knowing you said it. And I think there's, there's become a difference between what we consider liberal theology and progressive theology. That's true. Um, That's true. I, I think as some of us are moving, you know, farther in our deconstruction, we, we no longer are comfortable with this conservative liberal idea because they do, they both get stuck in their ideology. And this idea of progressive theology is something that's like, it's constantly progressing. It's constantly moving. And that is, I, 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 if it ever becomes a movement, it's a problem. But as long as it's moving and, and working towards, you know, reconciliations, working towards how we can work together in, as community. I, 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 will, I will stay within a progressive movement. And then I go, there I go using yeah. the movement. Again, and that's but, where, confessing traditions tend to be that way. It's like we have, we have our thing that we have to defend. And this is our list of things that we're going to, that we're going to go to the map for. Whereas if you create a, a system, a, a methodology of doing theology, then it, it becomes, it becomes always progressive. And what's ironic is that uh, Wesley was, uh, John Wesley was exactly that sort of, hence the name Methodist. You know, he was, he was the creator of a method of, you know, the, uh, of how we do theology, how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves in relation to the world. And, and yet, uh, and yet his followers, of course, you know, don't always, don't always do that, but, uh, <laughs> well, but don't we, we just don't, like we, Jesus followers. Right. We do, we do that all the time, don't we? We're like, listen, I'm sure Wesley would spit in his grave it, on yeah. some levels if he saw what has become, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Because like you said, he was not, in my, in my understanding of, of John Wesley was that he was, like you said, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily trying to formulate, you know, the 12 doctrinal points of Methodism. It was, hey, let's talk about how we work through these things, which should mean that it continues to progress even beyond him, right? Right. And even, you know, I, I rarely throw John Calvin a bone but neo-Calvinists are way more Calvinist than Calvin ever was. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. like they have taken Calvin and don't get me wrong. I think a lot of what Calvin said was abhorrent, right? There's stuff with him that I violently disagree with. But I think some of the new versions of Calvinisms, the John Piper's cue the kicked puppy of the world. And there's others who, who, who hold, you know, carry that banner. Man, they've taken so far. Like the Neo Calvinist stuff is, yeah, it just it it drives me up a wall. John, we have an on a running joke inside of this podcast that every time John Piper's name is mentioned, a puppy gets kicked. So, <laughs> and then we, I mean, so Eric's going to have to insert a couple of you, you know, so because uh, I just you know 
Well, and, and every time I think the guy can't get any deeper, and I don't even think it's always him, but there's a Desiring God Twitter account, podcast, whatever. And, and every, every time I think I've, I've found the bottom, something else come, he'll, he'll tweet something else and go, just keep digging. Oh my God, you got a <laughs> shovel, then you got something, you, and, and you, oh, you just got, you just doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down. And he's always doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on seemingly to me how bad God can be. And we still call him good. Like if God kills me, he's loving me, which is the last one I just like ripped him apart for. You know, no matter what God does, he's good. He's loving me no matter what. If he causes me illness, he's loving me. If he takes my life, he's loving me. I'm like, okay, you have a, I, I pray for your wife and kids, man. Like <laughs> it's a toxic relationship. But anyway, we digress. So, again, <laughs> here we go. Let's talk, about, let's talk about the book, man. Let's get to the knot. Um, first of yeah. all, I think that's a topic. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, to see your take on this, but I yeah. feel like rather than, you know, with the exception of how-to books and, you know, 10 steps to a better marriage, and there aren't a lot of books <laughs> written about marriage, I think, from your perspective, which is... Yeah. I, so let's uh, just maybe give us the overall premise and let's talk about some of the points that, you're, that you make in the book. Yeah, once I finished the book, I realized there's a lot of marriage books out there. I had no idea how many, uh, especially... And they're, know, all, and they're all the, bad. I'm sorry. They're just, they're all, they're all bad. Well, how many of them aren't self-help okay. books though? I mean, well, yeah. that's what, yeah, let that's, me clarify. The ones that are self-help books, right? That are just like, that, that are literally trying to make your marriage better. Yeah. Here's a formula. You, yeah. Yeah. Just plug into this formula and you'll have it all figured out. Yeah. Like we're all, like we're all the exact same people, like our lives yeah. and our marriages all fit into this cookie cutter idea of marriage, which is the first mistake of these books. So you finish this book though and you realize, holy crap, there's a, a plethora of marriage books out there, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when when uh, when I got on the Amazon page and there's, you know, it has on there other books you might like, you know, and I'm thinking, no, this is nothing like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got. I would not like this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, right. But, well, to answer your question, yeah, I started. It's funny that my journey in this started a few years back. Somebody recommended a book to me by a woman named Stephanie Kuntz. She's a historian at uh, Evergreen College in Washington State. And uh, she wrote a book called Marriage of History. She's, I mean, she's just a secular historian, you know, but uh, she just found the whole institution interesting. And so she she traced the marriage from uh, really the agricultural revolution to today and uh, how it's sort of evolved, how it's changed. And once I finished that book, I it was sort of a light bulb moment for me that most of what we talk about as especially in evangelical circles as traditional marriage really has only been around for a couple hundred years. Yeah. And the way the scriptures understood marriage is very different than the way we understand it today. And, you know, we try to read back into, I mean, everybody does this, but, you know, evangelicals in particular with marriage, try to read back into marriage, uh, our marriages now in, into the scriptures but when you when you take a pretty close look, it it it, it doesn't match up very well. And so, uh, for most of human history, marriage was about survival. It was about uh, trying to get food on the table and a, a roof over your head. And people married the, to create political alliances. People married to sort of um, help get more farm hands around the farm. People married uh, in order to create 
alliances between tribes or villages. Nobody really married for love. Uh, if you happen to fall in love with your spouse, that's great. You know, that would be fantastic. But uh, love, uh, romantic love anyway, wasn't really the, the impetus for marriage for most of human history until about 200 years ago. And it wasn't until about 200 years ago that people began to think, maybe I know better than my entire family of who I should marry rather than my family. Uh, and, and so mar- uh, marriage, as we understand it today, is, is a, a, a sharp left turn from most of human history. And uh, so when, when evangelicals talk about traditional marriage, what they really are talking about is 1950s marriage. They're yeah, not really exactly. talking, they're not talking about traditional marriage in which women were property and we had no choice in who we married and uh, sex and marriage were completely separate things and uh, love and marriage were often very separate things as well. You know, uh, there was, there was sort of a thinking in a lot of human history that you don't want to fall in love with your spouse because yeah, it's marriage is too important to actually have a romantic relationship with this person. You should have a romantic relationship with somebody else, you know? Mm. Uh, and so, uh, so Stephanie Kuhn's book really was eye opening to me. And, and it began me to really thinking about, uh, set off in my mind, I guess, trying to tend to re-envision that, okay, if marriage is really uh, much more pliable than, than I first thought, that means it can change again, right? I mean, it doesn't have to stay the way it is now. You know, what would it look like to reimagine marriage going into the future then instead of, uh, you know, trying to create more leave it to beaver, fam- you know, uh, sort of families. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so that's sort of, that was, I guess, what drove me into the book. But again, the minute you start talking about this, you know, in, in, in some institutions, it can get you into a lot of trouble. So once I once I was no longer in ministry, I started writing these thoughts down and processing them, and and I, I think that that kind of brought 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 it out quite a bit. So it, it's a very prominent topic right now, right? Specifically within the religious right and the uh, the conservative Republicans of this idea of we need to get back to traditional marriages, right? I mean, even Candace or, or biblical marriage. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's, yeah, Bibli- yeah, biblical marriage. But uh, what's, <laughs> like, what's what her the name? hell does that even mean? Uh, yeah. Candace Cameron Bure, right? Leaving Hallmark, you know, God forbid, but she did, so she could start her own network to to do Christmas movies that portray the traditional marriage, the traditional relationships, and biblical, right? Which is what she's saying, but she's not saying. But then you begin to ask, it's like, which biblical marriage are you talking about? Yeah. Are you talking about Solomon? Are yeah, you talking polygamy? about, are, we talking? Yeah, are, you, are you talking about David? Are you talking about, I mean, Adam and Eve, you just going back to Adam and Eve within the Bible. You have to say, you have to recognize that there could be no traditional marriage there because there are no people, right? So well, wouldn't they be the founding traditional marriage? Right, which is apparently incestual, right? Yeah, I mean, it has, it has there's, to be. Hey, there's just the one woman. Yeah, she's yours. Go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole the whole literalism thing there really gets really messy quick. Right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. yeah then, then, yeah, because then these Bible literalists have to like really work around this. Right, because they do mental <laughs> gymnastics. Yeah, they're they're gymna- they're yeah they're mental gymnastics to make it seem logical and okay in our day and age is just 
astronomical. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's amazing what they were able to do. <laughs> yeah. A big deal in the, in the Hebrew scriptures was the, was the, the Leverite marriage, which essentially was if, uh, if a man died, then his brother had to take his right. wife and kids on. Right. And if he, he was unwilling to do that, he had to meet before the city council or the town council and give a good reason why that he shouldn't, you know, marry this woman. And, and the, the thinking was, and again, if you, if you in the mindset of this, it makes sense. You know, you want to ensure the lineage of your family going forward. You don't want somebody else to marry her and uh, then claim the family's inheritance. And so this was, this was the major concern. You know, there were economic concerns involved with, with yeah. all of this. So in that context, it made it made a little. I mean, it made some yeah. sense. You know, even though we we may not value those same things that they did, but it wasn't completely absurd. Yeah, right. but I don't think we would endorse that kind of thing today. We're not really into into that kind of thing. Well, no, because we've hyper spiritualized marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you're running through this these these ideas of marriage, it seems to me if we would untether this institution right from all of its inherent, you know, at least current spiritual implications, we could look at it more pragmatically, and there would be room for marriage as a concept to evolve and yeah. meet the current need. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so in the book, part of, part of one of the a couple of things I thought were surprising. One, when I read Stephanie Kuhn's book, one of the things that really surprised me was that the church really never got involved in marriages until like the 16th century. And in fact, Martin Luther thought, you know, churches should, shouldn't be involved in marriages at all, you know, and it wasn't really till, you know, like the 16th, 17th century that, that priests and ministers began to oversee weddings. Before that, it was completely a civil thing. And uh, uh, so we have this sort of notion that like for centuries, this has all been tied into that the church and, and marriages have had this partnership, but that really isn't, hasn't been the case. And so the institution itself, you know, again, in the book, I, I, I kind of take appropriate Jesus' words when he says, you know, people were made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for people. We can say that of any institution, yeah, that people sure. are made for, or that that people are made for marriage, not marriage for people. That marriage isn't the thing that's sacred. People are the thing that's sacred, right? And when when we get those things flipped, it's like the institutional conversation we had a minute ago about you know how institutions become these things that uh, overpower our lives. They take on a life of their own. When the insti- when we end up serving the institution, we get it all backwards. The institution is designed to serve us. Not, not vice versa. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, uh, the same is true with marriage. When, when yeah. marriage, when we end up serving the institution of marriage instead of it serving us, we've, we've got it all backwards. Well, yeah. And, and out of that is birthed all kinds of toxic stuff, right? Because, because the evangelical churches that John and I were raised in, uh, mostly non-denominational, but, you know, very fundamentalist in some regards, marriage was a, was borderline divinized. Like mm-hmm. it was sacrosanct. Which meant mm-hmm. that when um, that, that at all costs, people stayed inside of unhealthy marriages because the right. institution was more important than the people inside of those institutions. So right. we had—I I can tell you of dozens of people that I knew that are like my parents' contemporaries who wore it as a badge of honor to some degree that they stayed in really unhealthy marriages that were yeah. bad for them and bad for their kids and created generations of trauma because they were so committed to the ideal of marriage that they could not see how unhealthy it was for them. And, you know, I think that, that, that's, that's one of the, the dangers of institution is that, um, we lose sight of the, the, 
of, of the fact that institutions are meant to serve us and not the other way around. And that doesn't mean that people can't stay in marriages forever and be happy and healthy. I think that, I think it can happen. Sure. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, when I, as a pastor, you know, when women would come or men for that matter would come and seek counsel about their marriages that were, like if a woman was, was being abused, my first advice was get the hell out. Yeah. You know, and that it's maybe safe. not church party, party line, but, and they would sometimes go, what do you mean? I'm like, you don't have to take that. God never intended for you to be someone's punching bag just to serve the, some idealized version of marriage that you have to stay inside of. Defend yeah. yourself, defend your kids, preserve your life. Um, but yeah, I think that's that. But do you find then that our sort of 21st century notion of marriage that is anachronistic, right? When we sort of, when we sort of read our sensibilities into an ancient text and go, well, that's what Jesus meant when he said that a man would leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and <laughs> this thing that now, now that seems very anachronistic to me. Yeah, and I'm not sure even how much we're accurately reading into the into the text. I, I was really surprised when I started this project. I went through and read every passage in the New Testament on marriage, and and was kind of struck by how few of them there really are. You know, not many, right? <laughs> There's really not that much. Yeah. And and you know, uh, and when you look at Jesus' words, you know, he he's got things like you know, oh, you know, if you who are my brother and who is my mother and who is my sister? He has all this deconstruction of, of family systems and, and, uh, lack of respect for, for marriage and family that, that you wouldn't expect, uh, an evangelical wouldn't expect. And in fact, at one point, his disciples say, well, man, it sounds like it's better to just not even be married at all. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, yeah, that's probably a good idea, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and Paul and, carries that on, right? And says basically, exactly. Paul says like, the same thing. Like, if you don't need to, don't. If you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. Yeah, what are you guys getting all married for, you know? And and the one time he kind of gives some, you know, a little bit of direction of like, here's how a marriage should kind of look like. At the end of it, he says, ah, you know, this is all my opinion. Don't even take this as divine, you know, kind of thing. Right. You know, so, I mean, again, it's really surprising when, when you actually go back and look at it, how, how, almost anti-marriage the New Testament is and how little they talk about. And even Jesus' teaching on divorce only comes about because people are trying to trap him in, 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 you know, in, in his answers. Well, isn't, it, isn't that the, the place where, he, as he speaks about divorce, isn't that where his disciples are like, well, then why even get married? Yeah, because he's, like, he's, he's, upending, he's upending even their opinion of how marriage works, right? And yeah. he's, uh, so they're like looking at his is deconstruction, you might say, of right. the idea of marriage. And they're like, well, if that's the way marriage is, why even do it? Because I've yeah, you, you've taken much. away all my power as a man over well, a but woman. That, but you but if, you don't under, if, you, if you study a little bit into marriage in first century Second Temple Judaism, there was this practice amongst, um, amongst those folks of men not divorcing their wives, but putting them away. Which was the, the that was the, the the euphemism for basically leaving your wife but not giving her a certificate of divorce, which meant that she was relegated to second you know second class citizenship. She couldn't remarry because she didn't have a divorce decree. Um, sh- that's why a lot of those women end up in prostitution and just trying to find ways to survive because their because their husbands didn't have the class to divorce them. They right. quote unquote put them away, and so I think Jesus was giving them a legal out. Right. To say, you know, listen, if this is the way this is going to go, then issue your wife a, de- a decree of divorce. And, but, but again, if, if you're not approaching that text with an understanding of what marriage looked like in the first century, 
and you're imposing 20th and 21st century sensibilities onto it, you'll you'll miss the boat, right? I mean, historically, you'll miss it. Yeah, yeah, com- yeah, completely, completely, yeah. So as, as, a, as an institution, what's your position then on how it might or could evolve as we move forward then? If we un- if we're going to unshackle it from the past, yeah. So so in the book, I, I talk about you know uh, the theological framework I kind of put around it is uh, is I, I take the saying from architecture, um, you know, form follows function, you know, and so in architecture, you always talk about you know the form a building a building should take a, a structure should take should be a reflection on its intent or its purpose. Uh, and so the same is true with with any institution, including a marriage social construct like marriage, the form a marriage takes, what a marriage should look like, should be a reflection on its intention. And hopefully the intention is love. Hopefully the intention is the well-being of the people in it or the well-being of the community at large. And, uh, and, and if that's your intention, then the form, the form is incidental then because really what you're going for is the function. And this is how we get legalistic sort of, sort of understandings of the world. People who are really legalistic talk a lot about forms. You know, we talk about rules and regulations and things we can and can't do. When, when, when we all know that, that that's just the, the cheapest form of ethics, you know, the, the rule following, that you can, you can follow all the rules and still be an asshole, you know? And, uh, <laughs> True. And probably will be one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't, doesn't guarantee you're necessarily doing the right thing. Uh, and so... So when form follows function, we, we quit asking the question of like, what's the best form of marriage? We ask, instead, we ask the question, what, what kind of marriage uh, creates the most loving environments and most health, healthy relationships, creates the, the most empowerment for, for the people involved in it? And, um, and that's different. It doesn't, there's, no, there's no cut and dry answer for that. There's no formula for that. Uh, there's no self-help book that's going to tell you what the answer is going to be for you and for your partner because... You're different. Everybody's different. They have different backgrounds. They have different families of origin. They have different life experiences. They have different places and times in life. Um, you know, uh, form and function, you know, works. We know this intuitively. If you have kids, you, you, you understand this. You know, you love your kids. That's the constant. That's the, that's the function of, of your life. You want your kids to do well. You want them to be happy. You want them to thrive in life. But the way in which you love them in order towards that goal is always changing. That form of love is always changing. Sometimes you love your kids by giving them a hug. Sometimes you give them, you love your kids by giving them a swift kick in the pants and some correction. Sometimes you love your kids by giving them $20. You know, that's what they need. Sometimes, you know, you love your kids uh, by encouraging them. There's just a million ways that you love your kids. The intent is always the same, is love, thriving, well-being, helping them thrive in the world. But what that expression looks like is always changing. It's always evolving and, and looking different in different contexts. And that's the same That's the same with a marriage too. Yeah, it, it always sort of struck me as weird too, because when you think about, and I don't know the history, I'm not a historian, but I have read and heard things like there was a there's a point at which the government gets involved in marriage because of its perceived um, benefits to culture and society right so there they begin to say the government begins to incentivize marriage because it it settles people right it puts them into a place where they need to settle down and earn a living and become productive so they they it kind of helps to solidify society it always struck me as weird that they didn't want that for the gay community 
<laughs> they always paint it yeah. as being sort of wild and promiscuous and they have all these caricatures for the gay community. They're out there. Why would you not want to help settle that 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 group of people down then <laughs> and get yeah. and begin to yeah. incentivize their joining in, into loving monogamous relationships that are family oriented and you know, because at that point their prejudice outweighs all of their practicality. Like this practically seems like a very smart move. We should have legalized gay marriage a long time ago rather than yeah. fight it culturally because we're so threatened by it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that strikes me as weird. You know, we always used to joke around me. Uh, we used to, you know, joke about we wanted to legalize gay marriage because well, why, why shouldn't they have the right to be as miserable as the rest of us? I mean, <laughs> but that's not fair. I'm not miserable. I've been married 31, almost 32 years and... You know, and uh, I'm, you know, and and I wouldn't change a thing. I'm happy. I'm happy about that. But my views towards how, how does this how does this affect then your view towards people's marriages that maybe end? Because mm-hmm. used to be for me that was the man. It was one of the ultimate tragedies. You know, mm-hmm. and even when it happened fairly amicably, and two people just decided, you know, this isn't working for us anymore, and we love each other yeah. enough to go. We're going to find our best selves someplace outside of this union. And yeah. they sort of set each other free to go pursue their best lives. And and then people sit around and, and mourn that loss as though it's a death. It, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. what, what your take on that would be, but I... Yeah, you know, there's there's no easy answers on that. I think uh, I think one of the things that's interesting in, as marriages evolved, I mean, obviously when, when a person's lifespan was, if you're expected to live to be 35 to 40 years old, when you said till death do us part, you know, as in your wedding vows, it had a lot different meaning than, than when, uh, you know, you're going to live to be 85 or 90, you know, and, uh, you're, you're making a whole different commitment, you know, uh, <laughs> that's a good point. So, that's true. So I think that's one of the things, you know, as marriages evolved, I mean, you know, again, it, it's, it's just different now that, uh, you know, if you're going to commit to 60 years with somebody, I mean, you, you better really like this person, you know? <laughs> Well, you know, given 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 how much I know, I've changed. I'm 51 years old. Exactly. I'm not even remotely the same person. I, no, in fact, no. I, I can't even. There's times when when you know my teens and 20s seem like like that was not only another lifetime ago, but a whole other person. And and that's great when people can evolve together, and mm-hmm. if relationships are healthy, I think they can. My wife and I have changed together over the years, but but that's created conflict as we've at some oh, point sure. in our lives looked up and went, you are not the same person I married. Now, I'm not the same person you married. Do you still like me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um you know that that's a that's that's a reality though that I think again if when we when we begin to prioritize the institution over the human beings inside of them, there's not that room for that I think sometimes that honest assessment. You know, and again I'm not advocating for people to willy nilly ditch their marriages. That's I don't, no, I don't think any of that should no. be undertaken lightly. But no. um, at the same time, I don't know. I, 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 my current view is I prioritize human beings over over idealized institutions. And, and it's just hard. And, you know, as you know, in my years as a pastor, you meet couples all the time where, you know, one person has grown and, and evolved and become, you know, over the years. And the other person, you know, they just like to sit by the pool and look at their iPhone. You know, yeah. I mean, they're completely happy with it. And and uh, and you think, how, how can this sustain? You know, I mean, if you're not going to grow together, it's... It, it's hard. I, there's not an easy answer to that, and every everybody's kind of got to work through that on their own. And sometimes, you know, it, you know, again, when you start talking about abuse and neglect and those sorts of things, I mean, there's 
there's sometimes where divorce is the best of a lot of bad options. You know, all the options are bad and, and maybe divorce is the best of the bad ones. And, and, uh, and sometimes that's the case, unfortunately. And, well, if you think about how many people enter into marriage, you know, like most of us did, John and I were pretty young. I was 19, man. What the hell did I know? Yeah. I think I might be, I might could have been excused for entering into a <laughs> lifelong legally binding contract without even 2% of the information I needed to go forward with it. Um, I, I tell my kids all the time, just because your mom and I did this and it has seemed mm-hmm. to work out does not mean this is what I would necessarily recommend for everybody. Um, we were too young. We were too dumb and just stubborn enough, you know what I mean, to stick it out. There's a pretty tight correlation between how young a person gets married and uh, the divorce rate. Um, and in fact, it was one of the most interesting pieces of research I stumbled on in, in this, when I was researching this book. Uh, you know, there used to be a thing that, um, that evangelicals used to say, well, you know, the divorce rate among evangelicals is just as high as the world's. But what I discovered actually is that evangelicals have a higher divorce rate than, than the yeah. average population. And uh, when you dig a little deeper into the data, what you find is that the reason that they have a higher divorce rate is that they marry so young. And the reason they marry so young is because they want to have sex. And so those things just all kind of fit together in a line. You know, they kids want to have sex. The only way to do that is to say these wedding vows. Okay, I'll do that, you know, and, and next thing you know, they're in a marriage and, and, uh, it, uh, it doesn't do very well when you get married that young generally. Well, I mean, it also, it also, there's this been this whole like idea that specifically within the evangelical church, specifically within the purity culture that no one really dates, right? We don't, we don't want them to date. Because dating leads to premarital sex, premarital sex leads to pregnancy outside of marriage, blah, 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 right? So we don't want them dating. So we ultimately set up a scenario where they never really get to know the person that they ultimately marry. So they're going into this idea of marriage blind. They don't really know the person because they're not allowed to date. They're doing these like, they go on like their church outings together where they're Strongly monitored. They're not allowed Don't worry, to. John, there's like, ways around that, man. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, but even in that, it, it, it's considered so taboo that then you're, you're doing it more out of like rebellion, right? So then your relationship is a rebellious relationship, which turns into a rebellious marriage, which doesn't seem that healthy to me. Yeah. That, where's that book that? Of uh, the author of that book, I kissed dating goodbye. Josh yeah. Harris, who has yeah. actually yeah. denounced it, right? He's denounced that. Yeah, yes, he's like yeah. super apologetic about it and denounced Christian faith. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is which is interesting. But but that was such an influence on so many people. This idea we're going to court instead of marry, and right, you know, right. And of course, the idea of courtship was your families got together, you know, and made these decisions for you, you know, which I'm not sure we want to go back to. I think we want to move into the future instead of, you know, back, yeah. in, back into the past in this, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's such a weird thing though. I was a youth pastor in a lot of that time. Right. And so I have a very, I have some very cringy remembrances <laughs> of conversations and I've raised kids in this culture too. So oh, man. Uh, when too. my daughter, yeah. my oldest daughter was in the, Eighth grade, she and this boy, who was a friend of the son of a, you know, a, a family friend, you know, um, they decided they liked each other and they wanted to start dating. And so the families got together 
and discussed, you know, the parameters of this dating scenario. Not so much me, but the kid's dad was really big on this. And so we literally had this really cringy sit down in my living room talking about what we would allow, how we would allow them to interact with one another and, you know, preserve their, both of their purity and make sure they didn't go too far. I'm like, they're in the eighth grade. They want to go watch a movie. I'm not saying, you know, that their hormones aren't raised and they won't try whatever. But, and then, you know, not too long after they started dating, <laughs> this kid's father came to my house and broke up with my daughter before his son. <laughs> the most fucked up conversation I have ever been a part of. I'm like, you're, you're kidding me. You're breaking up with my daughter. You're a 45 year old dude. Like, tell your son to get his ass over here and break up with her like a man. But no, his exactly. his, his dad came over and it was horrifying, dude. Tell but his dad, tell your kid to grow up, and that's all part of growing up. Go that's all part of like, that learning yeah. process. Of course, it's hard. <laughs> but the kid didn't get want to break up. Break up. Yeah. That was the thing, though. The kid didn't want to break up with my daughter. He wanted oh, his kid to break up with my daughter, oh, oh, and oh, so oh. he decided to shut it down. Oh my God. Because, and again, that, that if, if I could put sort of purity culture, you know, on blast, it would be with that story. <sighs> right? Because oh that's, the, the, and, and what you said a little while ago, that's sort of then the direct, one of the direct consequences, negative consequences of purity culture that we've shoved down these kids' throats are probably an entire generation or two of really bad marriages that we have kind of borderline, if not coerced, oh, for forced sure. them into because we've, because we've, we've demonized sex to the point where anything that happens outside of marriage is evil and bad. And so yeah. their sexuality is repressed. Their sexual identities don't ever get fully, fully formed. Yeah. It's just, it's just a mess. We've created a generation of broken people on some level who aren't even, they don't even want, they don't even know how to lay claim or a hold of their own sexuality because it's all tied up inside of this other, religious dogma, right? And God, yeah. you know, God forbid that it's something beyond this idea of having sex outside of marriage and it be something that you have a same-sex attraction because that's a whole other level of... Well, yeah, that's that's, uh, a, that's adding trauma on top of trauma. Right, and, uh, and the church is ill-prepared at best to even remotely uh, address that. Yeah, but so willfully that, so. Oh, yeah, willfully, yes. They, they are... They, they have willfully made themselves ignorant. They don't want to know, you know. But yeah, that's so. That's that. That do you address purity culture in the book, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. I um, and and what I say in the book is I I think I think purity culture is one of those really interesting things, especially once I walked away from evangelicalism, where I look back and think, man, that was messed up. I mean, yeah. When you think about the fact that that for 1800 years of church history, we had this sort of notion of what it meant to be a virtuous person, you know, that was really based on the life and teachings of Jesus. Do you care for the marginalized, the oppressed, the hungry? Do you feed the hungry? Do you clothe the naked? Do you care about widows and orphans? Do you do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. I mean, those were the ways that we sort of measured what it meant to be a virtuous person, you know, for 1800 years. And then all of a sudden we took all that and threw it out the window and said, no, the way you measure whether or not you're a virtuous person is by your private passions, you know, that, that so long as you keep your pants on, you're a good person, you know, and, and that really allowed us, frankly, it's much easier to keep your pants on than to feed the hungry. Oh, much you easier. Know? 
Wow. It's just way, way easier. And easy. the bonus part of that is that you can be self-righteous in your attitude towards everybody else who can't keep their pants up. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's this double win for self-righteousness. And all of a sudden we make this hard left turn in, in church history where, we, you know, in purity culture, where we begin to measure purity and our righteousness solely based on private passions. And it just has messed us up to no end. And it's diabolical. It really is. It's, it's really twisted. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've always wondered too, because there, there seems to be this other shift that takes place within Christendom where we pivot towards sort of an individualistic notion of salvation, right? Now it's my personal relationship with God. This is about my individual. So now I'm not, I'm not part of some corporate entity that's trying to do better. Right mm-hmm. now, it's all about mm-hmm. my individual purity, my individual right. piety, um, how well I observe the rules, how well I color inside the lines. When when John and I were coming up in youth groups and churches as kids, I, I mean, I, I could I can't even tell you if I ever heard a sermon from a youth pastor or even from our senior pastors about our responsibilities to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, do anything beyond. It was always about how we were to conduct ourselves in accordance with some set of arbitrary holiness codes. And so we were, we were force fed a diet of, of like, look, we're supposed to be in, you know, separate from the world in, the, in this way. And that was always in like, we didn't go to R rated movies. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't, we didn't right, participate right. in these sort of pop culture things. We didn't listen to secular music. We, you know, we didn't dress a certain way. We certainly didn't, you know, um, have sex with, you know, anybody ever until we were married. And, but yeah, you're right. But that's that pivot, right. Of, of that's mm-hmm. easier to contain. It's also easier to quantify if people are doing it versus yeah. this other sort of more ethereal thing. Right, right. You know what's interesting? I, when you were talking, it, it reminded me of I've I've done some some work in Africa. I'm part of this group that does economic development projects in Africa, and one of the countries we've worked in is Rwanda. And I, the thing I, I discovered about Rwanda, and this is super interesting to me. So, of course, they had the big genocide in Rwanda. Rwanda was like. Uh, the big success story for uh, evangelical missions in Africa for years and years. You know, well, look at all the great things we've done, all, all these evangelicals we've made in, in Rwanda. Then they had the genocide. And then you think to yourself, is this the product of what we create, <laughs> that evangelicalism created in, in, in Africa, you know? Uh, so when the Rwandan government reformed after the genocide, one of the things they did was they said, uh, okay, all these missionaries and all these church work and everything, you have to register your church with the government, which of course freaks out us Americans. But but here's what they said. And when you register your church with the government, we want to know from you, what is it that you're going to do to serve the community? Because if you're not going to serve the community, you will not get a permit from the government to open a church. You know what? I'm down with that. <laughs> Can we do yeah. that here? Yeah, you know, <laughs> no longer be allowed to open a church unless you can tell me your plan to serve your community. And yeah, not, isn't that great? I mean, and, and so it's a whole different mindset in, the, in yeah. the churches there. You know, they all have like these little foundations that are these little projects that they're working on. And it's, and I thought, you know, this, this isn't all bad. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think you're right. I, that that begs the question, does it not? Though that that there's some study needs to be done on that. I wonder how much of that did contribute to what happened in Rwanda, um, because because so much of you know what's interesting is you go into a you don't you go into a country and into a culture that's very tribal, 
Mm-hmm. And then you introduce even more sort of tribal ideals because Christianity can become very tribal. And you just give them more reasons to hate people they don't like already. And now you've actually given them more rationale to marginalize and other people. And violence is the inevitable outcome of all of it, I think. And maybe in, maybe in a place like the United States, that might be somewhat contained and curtailed just by our own culture. But Man, I, I don't know. But it'd be a good doctoral dissertation for somebody, wouldn't it? Yeah, it really would be. I need to get a hold of my, any of my historian, any of my historian friends out there who want a, an interesting field of study. That would be interesting. And we may be yeah. completely off course. Who knows? Maybe there's, maybe one doesn't have to do the other. But I, but I don't it think, I don't reasonable. I don't think you're that far off course. And I, I and I think you're being a little bit too optimistic. Uh, I think we aren't as under control in this country as, as we'd like to be. And well, I think, I think, yeah, I should have put that in quotes, but we haven't had a massive, you know, machete swinging genocide. So that's what I mean by, <laughs> by sort of contention. Yeah, it's a good thing we don't have a lot of guns in this country. Right, Otherwise, right. we'd be in a lot well, of trouble. Yeah, we, when, because, the, because the incidences of violence that we do have tend to be, they are isolated somewhat. They're big and splashy. You know, that dude walks into the gay nightclub in, uh, uh, where was that recently, John? Um, Colorado Springs. Colorado. Yeah, Colorado Springs. And opens fire in the back, you know, in, in a, in a part of the world where focus on the family is they live in the shadow of that thing, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and here's an organization that has preached nothing but quote unquote traditional family values. They have spoken out loudly and openly against the gay community. And the result of that, I think you can draw a direct line towards somebody who, who decides to take matters into his own hands and go, you know, rid the world of some people he, he finds abhorrent. So I, I put, I think they got blood on their hands. Um, well, I don't think, I think, I know they have blood on their hands, but. But I, I think a lot of that then moves towards this, this idea of marriage too, that specifically with the religious right, the ultra conservatives, the evangelical fundamentalists who are saying we need to get back to these traditional biblical values of family, uh, which honestly is that the wife stays quiet, that she is, that she does not speak out about the abuse that her husband is, is putting her through verbally or, or physically. That's, I mean, come on. That's the, that's the traditional values. This idea of going, you know, make America great again back to the 1950s. I, I don't think there's a single woman who, if she was really intellectually honest, would ever want to go back to that. I, I just don't. I don't see it. I, I would bet that most people who say, let's go back there whenever they're, and so they have an idealized idea of what that looked like. Right. Yeah, they have um, the, they, or they, they watch, were, you know, or they're white males who pine for the days when, when their power was unchecked. Right. And their privilege was on full display. But go ahead, sir. You had yeah. something to say, man. Well, well I was going to say, it, one of the research things I stumbled on in the book was uh, they did a survey of uh, college age women and asked them, if you had a choice between being in a traditional marriage, meaning 1950s marriage, or not being married at all, which would you pick? And 85% of them said, I'd just rather not be married. <laughs> so they're getting smarter. Yeah, so they're, yeah. I was going to say, the market's getting smaller and smaller for, uh, for these guys, for our neo-Calvinist friends. Yeah. yeah. Looking well, the for dating, these. I've seen their profiles on, on dating websites. <laughs> and the, the pool's already pretty small, man. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah. like I'm the head of the household. If you want to date me, you're gonna you're gonna fall in line. Yeah, you're gonna find a lot of women that way, dude. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it's such a it's such a weird thing. But so beyond the, beyond the issues of marriage, you know, traditional yeah. versus 
And then purity culture. Um, give me one more juicy topic that the book jumps into, man. Oh, man. Well, of course, I got a whole chapter on sex. So that's, uh, that's the really juicy but stuff. But are there sex you know? robots, John? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we had another guest on a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago. We talked about sex robots. It was great. Sex robots. <laughs> I, you know, that was outside the scope of this book. When, but, when, you, uh, do your next, when you do the second edition and you the add sequel. it, you could, the you could sequel. do it. Like a like an additional chapter or like an appendix or something. yeah that'd be great yeah, talk about sex robots be, but so the whole great. chapter on sex that's great yeah um, yeah yeah sort of the idea that uh, the the general idea is that um, and and I actually got this from a John Ortberg sermon uh, years ago he he did a really nice job of laying this out he he uh, he talks about human beings tend to tend to in terms of sexuality we think of ourselves either as angels or animals. Uh, you know, so the, the animal's extreme, you know, of course is, you know, hey, we're, we're just mammals and we've got impulses and hormones and, you know, just, so just do what you got to do. And, and, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of thing. And, uh, and then the angel's perspective is sort of the other extreme when we pretend, you know, because of purity culture, we pretend like we're not sexual beings at all and that we don't have sexual desires. And, um, and neither, neither one of those extremes is healthy. And uh, in fact, both can be be very destructive, especially, um, actually, probably the angel's perspective could be just as destructive or more destructive than the, than the animal's perspective. But, um, but yeah, so seeing, seeing human sexuality as something that's vital and important and crucial to, to human thriving, um, but, uh, but not seeing us either like as animals either, because we're, we're not that either. So, well, well, how do you, how do you see this progressing with like the next, the next generations coming? So, uh, my brother, uh, had the privilege of actually officiating my daughter's wedding on October 1st. So not too long ago. And, um, there were some, you know, interesting moments in that wedding that, uh, you know, I've been married also for over 30 years. So things that were not even questioned on how they would happen in our, in my wedding with my wife, you know, my right. wife would take my name, right? That's just, that's just mm-hmm. how it happens. Um, mm-hmm. there was very specific things that would happen within that, within that wedding ceremony. Uh, and even um, ours was a non-religious ceremony to be, you know, to be honest. And so there was not a lot of faith based information in, but it still followed the traditional marriage, right? So my, my daughter's, when she gets married, uh, her now husband took her name. That was one of the biggest changes that I saw, you know, within this next generation of people. And then, um, I honestly didn't feel comfortable giving my daughter away. So I had a conversation with Nat, my, you know, on the day of the wedding. It's like, I'm not giving her away. I, but I still want you to ask. I want you to ask the question, you know, who gives this woman to this man? Which gave my daughter permission to say, I do. It's me. I'm not someone's property. I'm not right, owned by right, anybody. Right. I'm making this decision to get in, to, to enter into this marriage. So what do you see as like, as the next generation of people who are looking at marriage and how it's going to work? Do you see any major changes or do you see that it's just going to be like a, a culmination of traditional marriage with some like modern ideas added to it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with your observations. I, I think that these younger generations are very much, um, they got a real low tolerance for patriarchy. 
And uh, so all that, those traditional marriage things. And I had that, I had that stuff too, uh, you know, when I was officiating weddings, you know, where couples would say, you know, what's this give this away? Who's giving, whose property of what, you know, uh, right, this is right. weird. And, and, uh, you know, they'd want, which I, I encourage them to rework and rethink, think through that, you know, I, that, that's one of the vestiges for sure of, of, uh, of truly traditional marriage. But, but yeah, I think, you know, my, I have adult kids, they're in their twenties and, um, you know, they're all dating and not a single one of them's married, you know, and, my oldest just turned 30 and I'm like, you know, I'd like grandkids at some point, you know, I mean, there's just waiting and waiting and which is not all bad, you know, but the kids are getting married much, much later than, than our generation did for sure. And, uh, that, that's probably not all bad. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're, like you say, they're, they're negotiating sort of their own expectations in, in, in marriage as well. A lot of them have seen, um, some pretty bad marriages and, and they don't, they want, don't want to repeat that stuff and, or, or be a part of something that's unhealthy. And so, so good, good for them. I've, I've got four adult kids, three, three of them are married. One is currently shacking up <laughs> and, you know, more power to them. You know, that doesn't bother me in the least. Um, the, uh, it would have 10 years ago. I've been like, what are you sure. doing? You're killing your mother. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, they all, they all, they all got married later than I did. My one son, like, literally did the. I mean, I, it, the only advice I ever gave him about marriage was like, listen, like, get through college first, man. You know, you know, because he he had goals, and I'm like, don't don't subordinate your goals to this. You know what I mean? Um, so, and he did that. He, he actually met his his wife his senior year of college, and they got married after she graduated. But their but their approach to this has been very different than mine, you know, and and I think it's part of it's because you know they saw the struggles that their their mom and I had over the years, not having our careers set and struggling financially, and you know that brings a lot of pressure um, and creates tension in the family. But I've also given them a lot of room to 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 pursue this in their own way, you know, and and my youngest son is currently living with his girlfriend, and you know. I, it is what it is, you know. It's it's. I, I don't I don't have a feeling about it one way or the other. I I love her. I love him. If they ever decide to get married, great. Um, but my my attitudes toward marriage are much different than they were thirty years ago, you know. Yeah. And and yeah. I don't I don't see it as as idealized as much as I used to. And I certainly don't see it as the end all be all for everybody. So I kind of take it like Paul does and be like, you know what? If you want to get married, get married. If you don't, don't. You know, <laughs> no harm, no foul. But yeah, so yeah, I, I appreciate you taking on all these topics. It's great. I, I, it's a to me, it's 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 a it's an approach to this that has not been done enough of. So I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been fun for sure. You know, giving us a book that's not a self help twelve step program to you know, <laughs> or uh, yeah, another book about someone's love languages. That's great. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, um, really. Make sure and check it out if you are listening to this. If you've made it this far, and John and I haven't run you off, buy the book. Um, the Knot is a, it, man, it's great. I think it's going to be revolutionary for you guys in a lot of ways. And check, we'll, we'll make sure and link to all your all your other stuff, your social media if you have it, and uh, websites yeah, yeah. and Facebooks and TikToks, and you know, make, <laughs> make sure people have you on Tinder. And oh wait a minute, that's that's uh, <laughs> don't, don't 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 look him up. I'm joking. If you need to buy real estate, though, I hear he sells real estate too. Though, so that might help you here in Arizona. Uh, he, he can hook you up with something. Um, but man, I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Oh, and talk. It was really a lot of man. fun. It was great to. 
to meet you guys virtually. Absolutely. uh, Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for taking time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.